Welcome to episode 45 of the Antinu Energy Transition Podcast. Today on petroleum exploration and the future of renewables in Norway. With Andreas Bjelland Eriksson, who is a state secretary in the Norwegian Ministry for Petroleum and Energy. Let's go. In Norway, it has been a big topic for more than a hundred years because from we started building out uh, our first large-scale hydro projects, there was always this debate on is this really beneficial to the local community? We have to sacrifice our local environment. How can we ensure that values generated from this project is being fueled back to the local community? And one more last thing before we start. On April 26th and April 27th, there will be Startup Extreme. And that's one of the key events in the startup ecosystem in Norway. And it's going to take place at Hemsedal. And I'll be there as well. And I'll be hosting a panel on navigating our way out of the energy crisis. And I would love for you to join as well. So if you're an investor or if you're a startup, if you're thinking to start a startup, then please make sure to join us at Startup Extreme. And you'll find a link in the show notes. And I'm looking forward to have a chat with you there. Welcome to episode 45 of the Antinu Energy Transition podcast. Today it's about petroleum exploration and the future of renewables in Norway. And I'm very happy to be joined by a very special guest today. And his name is Andreas Bjelland Eriksson, and he's the State Secretary of the Petroleum and Energy Ministry in Norway. So welcome to the podcast, Andreas. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for joining. We're today sitting in the ZAP laboratory, which is a laboratory for zero emission buildings on Klesaugen campus. And it's run by um, by Sintef. And just to give you context, it's just Andreas and me here in a small room. And we're going to talk about two major topics today. And the first one is obviously the future of oil in Norway. What good things came out of it? What's the future of it? And then the second part is um, we're going to talk about the deployment of renewable energies. What are maybe the challenges? What can we maybe do better? What can policy making maybe do better. Andreas, I normally start always with like welcoming the guest. So would you mind just introducing yourself quickly? Obviously, we know you're the state secretary, but there's so much more to a person than just having a title. So if you would introduce yourself and no one would know anything about it, what would it be like? Who are you and what gets you up in the morning? So uh, obviously, I'm a quite politically interested person. I don't think that is a shock to anyone. Uh, and I've been doing politics since uh, I was 12 years old when I entered the youth league uh, of the Labour Party. Uh, and for all of that period, uh, really energy and the environment and the climate crisis that we're facing has been what has interested me uh, the most. So I have been working with that in various capacities. Uh, I was uh, county councillor of my home county, Rogaland, for two terms, uh, serving in the transportation committee and working on, on greener transportation as one example. I used to be an energy regulator for a couple of years, so I've been working on the bureaucracy side uh, of the green transition. And then uh, now I'm uh, a, as a state secretary in, in the Ministry of Petroleum and, and Energy. But uh, I'm a very political person, and, uh, and, and that is sort of perhaps my, my most important background. What gets you up in the morning? What, what, is, what is the big challenges that you try to um, advance? 
it's very uh, easy to come uh, up with some kind of cliche answer <laughs> on, uh, to the these cliche. kinds of, uh, <laughs> of questions. Uh, but I think uh, if you don't want to change anything, there's not much point in, in getting up in the morning in the first place. And I believe that we all can make a positive impact through being engaged, through wanting to do something. Uh, so I guess uh, I believe in raising my hand uh, and trying to affect and uh, commit to, to positive change in any way I can. Uh, and that is a cliche answer, but it can be true, uh, true, true nevertheless. Uh, uh, so, so I think uh, for all people to to find the kind of uh, topics that they're interested in, uh, the kind of things that they want to contribute to change uh, in, in life, that's very important uh, to try to find that. And for me, that has become energy more and more uh, the more I have been working with uh, with energy topics. Yeah, which is probably also very understandable and it's also for many others in our maybe energy bubble that is since it is uh, this challenge is going getting bigger and bigger kind of by the day maybe we're all drawn to it because we all realize this is something where something needs to be done Andreas we've had a lot of turmoil in, in Norway and in, on the European level in the last years when it came actually to you know anything related to policy um, you know we all know about the Russian invasion in uh, in the Ukraine we all now knew about low en uh, oil and energy prices now we have high energy and oil prices we know we have to decarbonize from your perspective like what's what has been what has been changing what, what were the, the the main and defining topics in the last couple of years that um, that that maybe brought us where we are right now I mean, for the uh, 19 years that I've been engaged uh, in, in politics in various ways, people have always talked about the need for a green transition. What has really changed the last year, the last year and a half, has been sort of the way that that transition is being talked about. Because we've gone from a landscape where it's still something that should happen a couple of years ahead. And it's been very vague on, on actual policies, on how we can make this shift happen in practice. Uh, to sort of, okay, now we have to do this. Uh, and by we, I... I first and foremost talk about the European energy market, uh, but we see positive change going on elsewhere uh, as well. Um, and that has been such a huge shift. Uh, and it's, of course, driven, as you say, by the by the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Uh, I mean, 40% of gas supply to Europe was gone almost overnight. So uh, it's, it's such a huge impact. Uh, and of course, when you have to change, change is happening much Uh, faster than when you should change. So we now see real policies being put into place uh, in Europe uh, at a faster tempo uh, than ever before. And that is going to change the European energy landscape really quickly. Mm. We were just talking about the invasion in Ukraine, but is there any other landscape pressure that you would say has the most deciding impact on, on our energy discussion or the energy discourse maybe like specifically apart from uh, from the invasion in, in Ukraine? I mean, uh, uh, from a Norwegian perspective, it has had a quite interesting effect on sort of how the Norwegian continental shelf and the oil and gas activities have been viewed. Obviously, in the short term, we see uh, a broad specter of uh, political parties now stating uh, we should pump up as much oil and gas as we can in, in the short term to help supply the European market. But also in a bit longer term, and, and I know that there are conflicted views on, on this as well, I think you see more and more people understanding that at least in the short to medium term, there is no real 
other place to get the gas that Europe needs than the Norwegian continental shelf. And that has somewhat shifted some of the discussions about field exploration, field development also going forward, because we know even in a world uh, uh, and the world we should strive for that reaches its climate targets, Europe is going to need gas for many years going forward. uh, And that gas is probably going to be supplied most cheaply uh, and with the lowest kind of emissions from from the Norwegian continental shelf. When you say may for many years, what is the time horizon that you're that you're thinking about? Because you just said, okay, on the short term, there's a lot of need, and I think that's undebatable. That's totally, you know, that's just how it is. Because, as you said, 40% of the gas supply was just cut, and I'm German, so I know all, all my family members, and they had super high um, gas prices, for example. So there is a lot of need, but. That's the short term, as you also pointed out. So what for you is the long term? What in maybe also the government's view, what is the long term? How long do you envision that oil and gas will still come from the north of Europe to the central center of Europe and other parts of Europe? I mean, we're often talking uh, in in two various time frames. It's 2030 and everything that we have to do, uh, cutting European and Norwegian emissions by 55 per, at least 55 percent by 2030, and then it's the 2050 perspective as well. That are two often used uh, perspectives, and I think we need to keep both in mind at the same time. And the reason for that is that uh, getting to 55 percent uh, by 2030, uh, you can't do everything by then, simply because changing energy systems takes time. They consist of millions of components. Uh, technical and so, non-technical. <laughs> and, and regulatory as well, yeah, right? Policy. Uh, so, so it's challenging. So so that is one time frame that is natural to, to term sort of short to medium term. And then the longer term perspective is going towards 2040, 2050, uh, where you have more flexibility in how you design the system, simply because you have more time to build that system and practice. Mm. Uh, Mm. Uh, and I think those keeping those two uh, time frames uh, in mind at the same time is really important. And then on the uh, petroleum side as well, I think it's important to understand that uh, we can produce gas at the levels that we have uh, right now for about five more years without any new exploration, new field developments. But then you have a, a steep cliff because these are finite resources. Uh, so uh, you have the resources that you have developed historically uh, and you can produce on them for a short period of time. But if you don't add new resources, then, then that cliff is, is really steep and it's steeper than the potential change within the energy system. So that is why uh, continuing with in not uh, all potential field developments or, or field explorations, uh, but some is really important sort of to be able to maintain gradually declining, but not very steeply declining amounts of oil and gas to the European energy market. Currently, there's a lot of blocks being licensed out, still parts in the, in the North Sea, but also parts in the Arctic. Um, and one sees that there's, if I can trust the data that I saw, that there's less and less interest of oil exploration companies to actually engage in the ones in the in the Arctic because the logistics are more expensive. It's just more, it's harder to do it. Um, so all these blocks that are in the North Sea are more attractive. The others are not that attractive. So why, um, when you say that we need some more blocks to not have this very steep cliff, why is it then, like, isn't it then a bet to kind of continue betting on these Arctic ones? And doesn't that entail that the Norwegian government expects really high oil and gas prices also in the future? And is that a 
bet that also has some yeah some liabilities or some insecurities in that. There are some nuances to the way that you frame the question uh, because you, you have some existing infrastructure also up in the north. We have two uh, producing fields uh, up in the north. And they're connected the to LNG ter terminals, isn't it? And then they bring it down by ship. Uh, mostly yes, and and then you have the oil production uh, as well. But uh, the gas from uh, from the Barents Sea and uh, the northernmost areas uh, is is uh, uh, produced and and then delivered to the LNG terminal in Hammerfest and and then shipped out from there. Uh, but uh, what what is sort of important to state clearly is that uh, most of this is based on sort of the commercial companies willingness to take risk, right? They uh, have the uh, best ability to decide where to uh, look for more resources, what kind of resource that, that they want to uh, develop. And then it's their responsibility to deliver those resources to market at the price uh, that they are able to sell that to. And they have been very clear that they want to focus their uh, activities around existing infrastructure simply because it's uh, cheapest uh, and it has the highest potential of giving a viable return on the project in practice. But then we do see that there are some areas still within the sort of defined areas that we have already opened for petroleum activity uh, in Norway that can, could have a larger potential. And for example, if you want to find much gas, you'd probably not do that in connection to uh, existing infrastructure, simply because that is very well-known areas. So you are more likely to find smaller amount of, of resources in those kind of areas. Yeah, you said that it's mostly commercial actors that will then do the exploration and do the investments in, in the north. But also, the Norwegian, if I understand correctly, the Norwegian state takes quite... Um, over some risk of the initial exploration where gas and oil actually is. So by 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 taking over that responsibilities this um, for these northern parts, is that a risk that is worth taking when we when it might be that the world actually manages to cut down CO2 emissions and cut down the demand for oil? Because then it might not be uh, financially valuable or relevant anymore for the Norwegian state, like for us as people. I mean, uh, is that no, a bet that it's no, worth no, taking? <laughs> no, no, uh, first of all, let me state very clearly that nothing would please me more than uh, the world being able to transition the demand side faster than what uh, is perceived right now. I, I would be very happy if that uh, is is uh, is the end result here. But then, a typical uh, oil and gas project has a, a payback time of. Uh, around three years, perhaps. So the payback time here is is very short. And that is not an argument against being smart about which areas you uh, explore for, uh, for more resources and how, how you do the resource field explorations in, in practice. But uh, we have seen over time that the commercial companies are good at choosing what areas to uh, look for uh, more resources, how they uh, make their strategies in practice. So I don't think that the financial risk in practice is a substantial one. And then we need to make sure that we on sort of the climate risk perspective, ensure that we have sufficient climate policies in place, that we do the kind of work that we need to do with the demand side to make sure that uh, resources uh, are transitioned toward the green solution as soon as possible. But then you should not forget in all of that, that, for example, gas can play a role uh, through blue hydrogen, for example, as a, as a, a low carbon footprint uh, solution. 
So there are nuances also on, on how the resources are utilized in practice as well. To your point of blue hydrogen, um, in 2021, there came out a paper from uh, a, from a gentleman called Robert Hawthorne, and I had him on the podcast uh, four weeks ago. And this paper stated um, how, well, the name of the paper was how blue is green hydrogen. And they actually came to the conclusion that Blue hydrogen is actually not that green um, because there is a lot of CO2 emissions that need to be captured in the process, but also that the CO2 uh, infrastructure requires a lot of electricity that then needs to come either from green energy again or it needs to be captured again. Um, and so so it's, it's I feel sometimes that the narrative, and it's not, not the Norwegian government, I'm not sure, but the, the Norwegian industry is that, okay, blue hydrogen is another great opportunity to sell it to Germany. <laughs> and the Germans kind of like the green hydrogen, but they are like, okay, You build up some blue hydrogen, then we got the infrastructure in place, and then you switch it. Um, but doesn't that mean that we will build a lot of blue hydrogen infrastructure here that eventually might not even be bought in because the Germans cannot, the German government cannot say, tell this to their people, hey, we are buying a lot of blue hydrogen from Norway, and it's actually not that um, so you, low carbon? What? How can we do that? How does that I, make sense? I, I looked into that report when it came and uh, arrest me if I'm wrong here, but but I think it didn't study the Norwegian uh, uh, value chain uh, in practice. And I, I, I think it, studied, it was- uh, It studied, there, was, there were two blue hydrogen uh, co uh, commercial uh, plants commercially working and they got, took data from them. And yeah. they, One was in Alberta and Canada, and one was in Texas. Yeah, and uh, and I think there are uh, because uh, in terms of leakages from the system, etc., there are still uh, large uh, differences between various areas, and these things are regulated differently as well. I think with the kind of uh, know-how we have on CO2 capture and storage uh, through the Sleipner uh, uh, project, uh, where we've been capturing uh, CO2 for 25 years, we have data uh, uh, stating that this can be done uh, with small uh, emissions and that it can be done efficiently. And we obviously also have a very renewable electricity uh, system already today, where you Uh, by all means, need to think about how you utilize the electricity going forward, because we now are in a world where you don't have sufficient electricity for everything. Uh, but nevertheless, I think we have demonstrated that CO2 can be captured and stored in a safe manner in Norway, at least, and in a Norwegian context. Uh, so from that point of view, I, I think uh, that blue hydrogen uh, can be a good, at least, transitional fuel. And I think it's important to add because I feel sometimes that people discussing hydrogen, they forget that uh, volume is one thing, regularity is another important thing. And until you get sufficient uh, green electricity production and green hydrogen available, uh, for there to be a demand, the demand side needs to know that they can get regular access to hydrogen. So I think The reason why uh, delivering blue hydrogen and now uh, developing sort of this joint feasibility study that we do together with, with Germany to look into the possibility to deliver hydrogen to, to Germany, why that makes sense uh, is because it can offer a type of regularity at least until the amounts of generation and the amounts of uh, battery capacity, etc., within the electricity system is sufficient to be an alternative and to offer the same kind of regularity to the market. Uh, being a bit picky, Andreas, when we now invest in blue hydrogen infrastructure, 
I know from normal industrial uh, applications that you would need 30 years, 40 years to have it paid back. And, you know, you were just mentioning three years for an oil field, I think you said. And I was like, oh, okay, that is an amazing <laughs> uh, a short, short amount of time for, for such projects to come back. But normal industrial plants take 30, 40. Let's say uh, hydrogen doesn't take 30, but 25, whatever. But that would mean that if operators in Norway want to operate these kind of plants that are being implemented then in the next couple of years, then we would go over 2050. Um, and obviously, if it's a zero carbon technology, blue hydrogen, which I doubt it is, but if it is, then that's okay. But if it's not, then would, that would mean we would have infrastructure that would lead us over this 2050 cliff. Um, and I don't really know how to make a, uh, a question out of this, but this is maybe a comment. So how ca can you comment on that? <laughs> I mean, that, that is one thing that uh, we look into in the joint feasibility study. Is it realistic to build an infrastructure in practice? And it's not locked that that infrastructure has to be one or the other, right? It could be a pipeline, but it could also be a maritime transportation network. What we are building now through the Longship project uh, on CO2 storage uh, is, in at least in the first phase, a maritime uh, uh, transportation network, which uh, out to the fields, isn't it? Yeah, out to the from uh, from uh, Nusem in Brevik, uh, uh, just south of Oslo and, and then from Celsius in Oslo as well and to ship it to the western coast of Norway and then inject it down below the Norwegian continental shelf. So uh, the advantage of building a maritime network is that you can have much smaller volumes uh, and it's still economically viable, right? But if you're investing in a pipeline uh, structure, obviously you need bigger volumes uh, fast to make it economically viable. And that's the kind of issues that we look into with the joint feasibility study. But I think if we are going to Uh, meet the climate target, transition the energy system fast enough, we need to utilize also what we have in a smart way. And that is why I think blue hydrogen uh, is an interesting part uh, of sort of the totality, uh, uh, at least in a 15, 20 year perspective, because we have existing infrastructure producing gas. Uh, we do want to build up a CO2 storage network below the Norwegian continental shelf, but then we need to get volumes uh, for the first phase, building it up. Uh, and then we also have established markets around uh, in Europe. We have some existing infrastructure in Europe that could utilize this blue hydrogen already now. So. I'm very sort of, uh, I'm, I'm a bit ambiguous when I talk about hydrogen, because for a couple of years, uh, people working with energy was sort of saying uh, hydrogen is the answer. What was the question? Uh, and that was how it <laughs> yeah. was. Uh, and then not all loved to talk about blue hydrogen, but those who loved it was like, yeah, and blue hydrogen is the first answer. And then green is the second. Uh, I, I don't want to talk about blue hydrogen like that, but I think we have a sort of almost responsibility to see how can this fit as a building block in the energy transition going forward. Uh, and I believe that if it's well regulated and with the experience that we actually have uh, in Norway uh, on uh, on industrial utilization of uh, hydrogen, on CO2 storage, uh, it, it's, it's an opportunity that we shouldn't pass on, at least. Hey, yeah. Uh Sorry to interrupt, I was just wondering if you're enjoying this podcast episode. If that's the case, then I would be very happy if you would subscribe to the podcast, either on Spotify or Apple. Thanks, and now let's continue with the episode with Andreas. Andreas, a couple of minutes ago you were referencing renewable electricity and you were saying 
kind of, I'm rephrasing, I don't know how you completely said it, but you said like, let's see where we're going to use that for. That's how I kind of get it. So if we now switch from oil and gas exploration, but more to like renewable electricity, current situation and the future, can you draw the, the picture maybe for the audience of like, where are we coming from in Norway when it comes to re renewable electricity? And what are the challenges that we're having right now? So, so I think uh, what more and more people working with the green energy transition understand is that the answer is sort of to electrify everything that you can electrify uh, and then utilize other energy barriers, utilize other building blocks for the rest. And that is how we utilize electricity in Norway today. Uh, and the reason is not so difficult to under understand or explain uh, in practice. We have a lot of hydropower that we have built out over more than 120 years. That has given us access to cheap regulated energy uh, that we have been able to utilize for uh, industry, for heating of homes. Uh, Which is uh, foreign for Central Europeans. <laughs> that's like, we don't do that, but in Norway that's been done. Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> it's, ve it's very different. And, 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 and Norwegian households consume uh, on average about 16 to 17,000 kilowatt hours per year. While I think a German household com uh, consumes about three to 4,000 kilowatt hours. Yeah, I had four in mind. Hours, right? It depends on how many people live in the household and everything, yeah. but yeah, on average. Yeah. So that's interesting, three times higher, isn't it? And when you walk in Norway through houses that I feel the lights are on almost all the time. I, I mean, <laughs> I, I mean uh, when when you as a Norwegian travel to another country and you meet people like, yeah, you have to turn off the light when you leave a room. People don't quite uh, sort of understand the concept. It's more like, oh, we we turn it off when we leave our house. But uh, other than that, it, it's mostly turned on. And and we we have uh, utilized uh, electricity for, uh, for many things uh, because it, it has been cheap and it has been available. And then what I think we see now is that first uh, there is in parallel to the Norwegian story about how we have developed our electricity system we have uh, because uh, hydropower is a, a weather dependent source we have connected our uh, electricity system to the countries uh, around us, uh, us our neighbors uh, from the 1960s and all the way up until today and what hit us really hard for the first time uh, through the energy crisis was sort of the effects of the European energy system. Uh, wow. what, uh, what happened there? Uh, well, <laughs> uh, I mean, uh, as we stated already, 40% of gas supply disappears almost ov overnight. Prices skyrocket, uh, and that has an a, a effect uh, into the Norwegian electricity system through our connection with neighboring uh, countries. So for the first time almost ever, all of Norway uh, or all of southern Norway, I should state, uh, has been hit with a with a price crisis with respect to electricity, uh, and that is one part of it. But then also, uh, uh, still fifty percent of energy consumption is in Norway is is fossil based. We have a lot of uh, electrification of transportation, of industry, uh, of other areas uh, where we have to electrify to cut emissions. Uh, so uh, both to sort of solve the short-term energy crisis, but also to solve the challenges going forward, we need to utilize energy smarter than what we've done up until this point. Uh, and we need to build out much more renewable electricity generation to be able to, to meet future demand in practice. Yeah, so the recently there was an, an energy commission put in place and they had their report on the 11th of February and they pretty much 
you know, the audience, they just said, they just put out what, what Andreas just told you. So they're currently, there is still a surplus, isn't it? And in the next couple of years, we will run from a surplus into, um, into yeah, like additional demand that we'll have. And the easy way out of that would obviously be to, to ramp up the deployment of renewable energy sources that will be roof, uh, rooftop solar, utility solar, onshore wind, offshore wind. But you're, uh, but Norway had a little bit of a challenging story in history when it came to social acceptance of these technologies. What is your take? Why why is that such an issue in in, in Norway? Also, when it comes to you know, we had these really large projects in Fusen and like, but like, what's your take on why is it why is social acceptance such a big topic in in Norway? I mean, uh, I think this has been a big topic uh, everywhere in Norway. Uh, no yeah oh, it, is Germany, big, yeah. it is a big topic in many places but in Norway it has been a big topic for more than a hundred years because from we started building out uh, our first large-scale hydro projects uh, there was always this debate on is this really beneficial to the local community we have to sacrifice our local environment how can we ensure that uh, uh, values generated from this project is being uh, almost so sort of fueled back to the local community that has always been a big discussion in our way and it's been a discussion in various phases uh, and there is obviously as you mentioned a new big discussion now on on land-based wind and the acceptance uh, of land-based wind i want to say that uh, i think the energy commission's report is is called more of everything faster uh, and it's a really good term on on how to meet uh, the energy and climate challenges go, going uh, going forward but when you look at the various technologies that we can build out in Norway i think uh, there is a Uh, limited potential, uh, uh, but it's quite small with respect to hydro. I think it's about seven terawatt hours. So the new build of of hydro is more about uh, making more capacity available to the market uh, at the same time, improving the regularity of, of hydro power generation. And then land-based wind, as I mentioned, challenging due to social acceptance, uh, solar will play a role, but uh, it will be moderate uh, in practice, probably. We have a quite big potential within energy efficiency, but the really large volumes of renewable electricity production going forward will probably come from offshore wind generation. We have the goal of 30 gigawatts uh, awarded by 2040. And I mean, 30 gigawatts, that's almost the entire capacity of the electricity system that we have Uh, spent 120 hour, uh, years uh, of building up uh, in Norway. So so that would be huge amounts of, of electricity into the system going forward. If I'm not mistaken, in Germany we had 44 gigawatt, I think, a couple of years ago when it came to onshore wind. So that's that's a substantial number. So as we say, we need renewable energy at scale. Um, and on the other hand, now we had this... Um, There's new developments when it comes to taxing renewable energy systems, and I'm aware that Norwegian state is a rich state, but it's not that you know money's everywhere, so everything needs to be taxed to a certain amount. But I got this um, this this report from Anadactics, it's a consultancy firm, and they say that they expect three million dollars in annual revenues from uh, from windfall taxes, if I'm not mistaken. Um, so so if that's the case, yeah, if that's the case, why, why is it that? While we know we have to do the green shift and while we know that there's a lot of, you know, why is there so much tech support for uh, for oil and gas in the last bit, in the last years? And why is it is, is the, the, the deployment of renewable energy so highly taxed now? How does that fit together? 
I mean, it's not quite true what you state because uh, uh, we have symmetrical taxes uh, in Norway. So uh, the oil and gas industry, they pay 78% of what they earn. Uh, they pay that back in taxes. But then the symmetrical part of it is also, of course, that 78% of their cost is natural to naturally deducted through the uh, uh, tax system. And we have a somewhat similar principle with respect to natural resources and as well in Norway, a high base tax where uh, you can say in many ways uh, us as a society become a majority owner in the project because we own uh, a majority of the cash flow that is generated through these projects. Uh, and that has been a really successful model in Norway with natural resource generation as a whole, both in oil and gas, but also in renewables uh, historically. And then the special thing that you refer to is obviously the windfall tax that was introduced last year to meet the current crisis and to be able to fund the temporary measures that we have put in place to safeguard uh, especially households uh, from the very high electricity prices that we have right now. And those are not unique to Norway. You have the intramarginal tax uh, in the EU basically doing a lot of the same, uh, cutting uh, uh, profits when uh, prices reach uh, a certain level. Uh, but these taxes are temporary and they will be removed uh, uh, at the latest in Norway uh, by the end of next year, so that we make sure that there will be a good economy in investing in renewable electricity generation going forward. Two, two points that might be a bit critical. So first you say we needed the money to uh, to be able to pay the measures that were implemented last year. But then the question is why from renewables? Because on the other hand, a lot of oil uh, projects were substantially like the car, uh, tax was cut and they were supported. So why supporting oil and not renewables? And then second one is you said that was a bit of romantic, if I may say. It's like, oh, the Norwegian society is now the... the, uh, the um, Uh, benefactor of these kind of renewable energy projects. But the thing is, if you tax renewable energy projects so high, then there's less incentivization for these project developers probably to actually go into it if it's not a real good business model for them. So, that to, you know. It's... It Uh, it's a good question. And uh, I mean, uh, one of the things that I'm really proud of, of uh, how we have uh, uh, utilized uh, the income from our natural resources in Norway is the building up of the sovereign fund. Uh, and that is very important uh, to make that point, simply because uh, all the taxes that we get from the petroleum sector in Norway is put into the Uh, sovereign fund uh, and then an annual revenue from the sovereign fund is utilized for the annual state budget in practice. But that also means that in a very challenging short-term situation where you need uh, cash to uh, to fund uh, a short-term measure, higher taxes for the petroleum industry won't give short-term revenue. It Why gives long-term long revenue through the state uh, sovereign, sovereign fund. So you can always uh, increase the short-term amount of oil money that you utilize uh, generated from the sovereign fund, but you cannot do short-term term changes in the petroleum tax to, to increase the revenue uh, on, the, on the state budget. So uh, the reason why it was put up like that was was to avoid this Dutch disease and, and 
other kinds of effects that we've seen in other countries. And it served Norway very well over time because we have been able to build up uh, basically a perpetuous uh, cash flow uh, with the sovereign fund uh, that future Norwegian generations can can benefit from. But and, then, to be, and to be fair, that sovereign wealth fund is probably the well the best managed sovereign wealth fund on the planet. So um, and. Yeah, I won't argue uh, <laughs> with you uh, on that, and 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 it's it's now uh, it's now funding uh, almost a third of the state annual budget. So it's to to make sure that what is basically a, a short term income uh, is sort of generated into a perpetuous uh, income stream for future generations. But I just wanted to make the point on 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 the taxes as as well because I completely agree that we shouldn't have taxes in place that uh, uh, does not uh, over time uh, make the kind of investments available uh, because they're not profitable uh, for renewable electricity generation that we want. But there you have to split between two types of taxes because, I mean, the short-term uh, high price uh, tax that we have in Norway, which is similar to the intramarginal tax in, in the EU, that cuts revenue uh, when they're high, uh, thereby reducing profitability of projects. And that is why it's been very important to state that that is a temporary tax. The other kind of tax that we have for renewable electricity in Norway uh, is a natural resource tax, where 45% of the uh, uh, excess income generated, the net profit generated, is taxed. But where also 45% of the investment in a new project is taken on by the state, basically reduced uh, uh, by, the, by the project developer. So by the natural resource tax, we as a society do not reduce the uh, profitability for the investor in itself as long as it's uh, made in a, nat a neutral way. We just sort of buy a stake <laughs> in the project. Uh, and when it's profitable, we gain a large share of that profit as well. And we know that building out these kind of natural resources are profitable and that it's a good way of distributing income towards uh, the investor and then us as a society uh, in practice. Yeah. Andreas, I've got two more questions because we're coming a bit to the to the end of this, this episode. Um, and the first one is, Workforce. Um, we had a lot of investment now, more even in, in, in oil, and that might take some people away from the work market that we might need for the green shift. On the other hand, Norway is a small country, and there is only a limited number of well-educated people. Um, when it comes to the green shift, there is a lot of need, what I hear in my bubble, and maybe it's just my bubble, but there's a lot of need for highly skilled people. What is the government doing currently um, to, you know, to attract these people or to educate the people uh, domestically? I think one of one of the most uh, important things uh, that is happening uh, in Norway right now is how some of the large companies we have uh, is making the energy transition, building the North Sea, uh, going forward in practice, and how they do that in practice. I mean, uh, if you look at Equinor as one uh, example, uh, they they take a lot of the competencies that they have, uh, and they put that into CO2 storage. They put that into offshore wind, they put that into uh, these new kind of renewable business areas. Uh, and with the huge cash flow that they have, uh, they have stated that they will uh, invest 50% of their CapEx in 2030, uh, I mean, in their capital uh, expenditures in, in 2030, in renewable projects. So they are really, really, really ramping up uh, in practice. And then on the government side, I mean, uh, uh, making sure that you have sufficient uh, uh, interesting possibilities 
facilities at universities uh, uh, all over the countries, etc. Uh, that we are a digitalized society, that we are a stable uh, society. Those are the kind of factors that we, we as well can can really influence in practice. Mm. Yeah, just one comment, and I think I have to do it because if not, then I would not feel comfortable with myself. Um, but you just stated that. Equino, for example, wants to have 50% of their in capex of their investment by 2030 in renewable energy or low carbon technology, I think is the term. Um, that also means that they are not doing that right now, even though we know that it's an oil company, but we also know that we have so much, you know, challenges really. And still, this is not the case. And sometimes I'm like, ah, really? It's 2023. You don't have to come. If you like, please comment, but you don't have to. <laughs> no, I, but, 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 but I mean... Um, uh, It's uh, yeah, yeah, one can one could always wish so that things more, were, more was faster, happening yeah, even yeah. even faster. I think one challenge is that because we have been talking for the energy transition for a lot of years, but there has been sort of so and so actual work on on concrete projects. What what is really taking some time to ramp up, not only for Equinor, but for the entire value chain, is project development. That is, as I view it, one of the major barriers right now, that for a lot of years, we, we haven't been able to develop enough good, Uh, solid projects fast enough uh, that there actually is things f uh, for people to invest in in practice because I do not think that you lack capital, I do not think that you lack interest, uh, but companies, uh, and that's uh, all types of energy companies uh, uh, state very clearly now that one of the greatest challenges is finding sufficient projects to invest in, in in practice and that is one thing that we have to ramp up as quick as we can. We are doing a lot uh, in terms of offshore wind as one example and many other countries around the North Sea is uh, doing the same. But at the same time, it's easier to forget that parts of the supply chain industry, for example, has really been doing a lot the couple of last couple of years. Last Thursday, I was at a send away event for one of the uh, uh, transformer platforms that are going to the Dogobank offshore wind projects in the UK being sent from, from Abel in, in Haugesund on the western coast of Norway. Uh, and they stated that now more of 40% of their order book is already renewable projects going forward. So there is a lot happening already. And then I think we need to do even more uh, also on the regulatory side and, and the government side uh, on fueling project development so that we can sufficient project developments going forward. Because I don't think that Equino would mind being able to invest 50% of their capex in, in low carbon technologies even earlier. But I think that they would need to see solid uh, projects for that to actually be viable in practice. Yeah. And one more last word to this, you know, scaling, scaling, being faster, faster, I think is super key. Um, but it's also important to not forget people. It's not a lot, you know, you're going to a uh, discussion panel around, I think, later with uh, w around this project in Fusen, where, you know, we had issues with, with local uh, herders. Um, so these are things that also need to be taken into account. I don't want to open that now. I just want to state it. So last question. Here we go. And then we got to wrap up, Andreas. And that is, um, for me as a German, um, it feels a bit funny when there is sentiments in the Norwegian discourse about building large offshore wind farms and then only connecting them to Norway. That sounds to me a little bit of nationalization or like national sentiments. Because, um, you know, I feel Norway is really part of Europe. And when I when I meet people here, I feel this is so European. And it also makes like sense. I, I read uh, um, um, Statnet also in a hearing in, in August 2021. They said it's actually economically more like it makes more sense to connect these 
wind farms also to yeah to, to European mainland. Um, but I know that there's some issues going on in the government even itself. But like, what's your take on that? What what shall we do with these offshore wind farms? I, I uh, love that that is the final question that you bring up. And the reason for that is that uh, it, it has a lot to do with sort of the complex nature of what we need to do going forward to make sure that the green shift benefit local communities. Uh, I'm, I'm not going to, uh, to, to tell the entire story of the Norwegian electricity system, but uh, I think for many years it's been very important for Norwegians because we have cold winters, dark winters, etc., to have uh, access to cheap renewable electricity generation. That's been very important and it is very important. And I think having access to as cheap as possible energy is not only important to us here, it's important to Germans and Italians and uh, Americans and all people around the world. And then I am absolutely sure that we will see uh, hybrid cable projects if we are going to realize the targets uh, of 30 gigawatts awarded by 2040, because it doesn't make sense feeding in uh, that much unregulated uh, power uh, totally into the Norwegian system. It doesn't make sense in practice. But we have not, from the government side, wanted to just say, okay, let's just build it and we see how it goes and everyone's happy and we can build out uh, offshore wind. We've stated that we need to understand the effects of hybrid cables. We need to understand how they can be designed in a way that benefits both consumers in Norway and consumers in the country that uh, you connect the hybrid cable to on the other side. We need to make sure that we know how it affects the profitability uh, of the of the park, uh, that uh, we know how it affects the Norwegian power system as a whole. And a lot of these issues are sort of issues that you uh, need to look at and analyze in practice before deciding on such a big thing as building out a hybrid cable. Because the alternative is that you simply build it and then, okay, let's see how it goes and, and, and it has the effects that it has. And then suddenly it has really negative effects on uh, Norwegian households industry that you didn't put into place some kind of mechanism to try to, to shield them from. And then suddenly uh, uh, the center shifts. People don't want offshore wind because they experience that this project does not lead to more renewable, cheap uh, uh, electricity. It, it leads to, to more expensive electricity and they feel that they have somewhat been, been shaded from the entire effects that this would actually have in practice. So that is sort of the approach I think we need to take to the green transition as a whole. And I know that a lot of people just say more, 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 let's just do it. Let's just push forward. And I completely agree, but we need to know the effects of what we do. We need to stop up and, and, and think at the right stages uh, through time because uh, whether it's uh, local um, acceptance of building out a project wh whether it's uh, the effects on prices whether it's the effect on, on energy security these things need to be analyzed and it's why the green transition takes more time than some of us sometimes wish for uh, but it has to do that if, you, if you're going to be sure that you build a framework that can have social acceptance over time uh, and that can actually benefit consumers uh, over time as well. Andreas, I think these were really nice words in the end. So thanks a lot for joining me today. All the best of luck with your, with your future work. And um, yeah, thanks for joining for this podcast today. Take care. Thank you.